Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Scholar AI Founders Pod. Make sure to catch us on all the places you find your podcast and check us out on YouTube today. I'm joined by Lakshay and Shashi. Um, so we're going to get into some things that we've been reading about and learning about over the, the past week. So thank you all for joining us. Um, so, so let's start everyone. Um, so, so recent news, um, layoffs, um, including well, the one that I'm most familiar with, which is, um, Sports Illustrated. I wanted to get everyone's reaction to kind of, you know, changes that we're seeing holistically across, um, the news industry, how that might affect day to day reading of news, how you two might be sourcing your news. I'm um, kind of anything. So Shashi, why don't you start us off with that? I. I go to a few brands for specific kinds of news, Wall Street Journal, for financial news. Um, I used to go to ESPN, but I, I, it's just too noisy for me now. Uh, I prefer something more targeted, and I think we're heading into an era of kind of trusted experts anyway. So uh, so a few people I follow on Twitter, uh, X, who provide kind of specific segments of news, and I think we all kind of unbundled news and now are personalizing our bundle of news from specific uh, specific sources. Yeah, Lakshay, anything to add there? Yeah, I think, um, at least like the way I kind of like, I like have Wall Street Journal, I have New York Times. I think like the way I kind of look at is that like my engagement with news, I think there's obviously stuff that's kind of like globally like recognized, like my like current affairs, oftentimes I kind of feel like I get from like nightly news on like NBC or even just like, by like word of mouth from like a lot of social media. And that's kind of the way a lot of stuff has developed. The way I kind of look at like consuming news, like from companies um, has been much more just like, I go to the apps cause I want to read a story. And that's very different from just wanting to catch up on what's going on in the day to day. Um, so I kind of look at like the role of like someone like a, a journalism company, a little bit different than it might've been like 10 or 20 years ago. I think that's well said and it kind of mirrors my experience as well. When I'm just trying to look for recommendations for new information, I actually just use like the Google Explore function on their iOS app. So like if you, if you go to Google Chrome and the iOS app, it kind of just has like uh, an explore in the same way that like Twitter or X has a, has a newsfeed kind of thing. And so just like scrolling through that, if I'm just looking for, you know, new forms of information. But like you said, Lakshay, if, if I'm wanting to read about a specific story, honestly, I usually start that search on X or Twitter. I, I usually start there. And um, I think that kind of nods to this idea of a growing importance or a market dominance, if you will, of the idea of a citizen journalist, right? So I, I don't necessarily uh, believe in the credentialing that used to exist from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or et cetera. Yes, those names obviously have pretty strong brand recognition and I'm not discounting that. But when I'm looking for a news source or story, I'm relying much more on kind of the individual merits of the individual uh, writer or, or, or kind of a news creator versus the organization that they kind of quote unquote um, work for. And I realize that parsing those two things is, is difficult in most cases, but for whatever reason, I find myself gravitating more towards individuals kind of independent of where they work versus an institution first, and then simply finding who works for that institution and then kind of reading about them similar to how Shashi was referencing ESPN. I still follow a lot of sports writers that work for ESPN, but I'm never at ESPN.com or ESPN in the slides. It's always kind of more this bottom up, you know, information filtering versus the, uh, what I believe to be the kind of traditional uh, top down. So. Um, and do you think that applies yeah. for science too? Do you, do you follow a single science journal rather than kind of individual mm -hmm. science? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, a, 
It's an excellent um, question. In some ways, it actually is the opposite for me. And so I, I read nature, um, meaning like I will on a almost daily basis, um, at the very least, you know, four to five times a week, I'm just on nature's homepage and they have like latest, you know, research articles. And so I'm just scrolling through that, picking out titles um, that, that make sense, uh, you know, that are relevant to my field or just simply interesting from, from kind of, you know, um, a first pass basically. And so I'm reading them like that. I actually find that that is directly a result of two, two reasons. Number one, nature kind of has the strongest brand name in, in, in science. So like, I just assume that the work that goes into nature is of slightly higher quality than of other particular journals. So it, it finds that they kind of publish on average the most interesting results. So I like that. I also find the layout of their website to be really encouraging of that kind of scrolling behavior, right? I can scroll it almost as if I'm scrolling like a newsfeed from a social media outlet and I can kind of get it um, very rapidly. Other websites I've found like science, for example, science.org as a contrast are harder to navigate and they just don't have the kind of journal articles curated in what I feel is a, as pleasing a way. And so that's what turns me off there. Um, I will say that for lots of other people that I know in the PhD or otherwise, they do follow specific labs and specific authors more strongly than I do. So um, I do think it's a little bit of a personal preference when you're, when you're discussing it throughout science. I also, in addition to that, um, have like RSS feeds from Google Scholar and otherwise um, that send me papers on specific keywords. So like if it, if it, you know, it's highly relevant to the work that I'm doing in my day to day, I'll get that directly delivered to my inbox. And I just simply use that as a top level funnel. And then I, I may or may not, read the paper, depending on the title. Um, often I find that is more noise than signal, but occasionally there are some good hits that come through there. So I end up reading those papers as well. Yeah, my previous company was acquired by Springer Nature and then I was part of Springer Nature for a few years. And um, so I know lots of people there well, and there, there are lots of really talented people there. I, um, I, I do find the behavior of the consumer interesting and in how uh, it's, it's sort of unbundled, fractured, uh, personalized readership for general news, but it, do, it does seem like, at least so far, the journal brands have managed to weather that storm. Um, what do you think is different? How, what makes it kind of more survivable for journal brands, but less so for a New York Times? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think, I don't have a perfect answer, but my intuition is that because the bulk of those journal readers are using it as reinforcement for their professional reputation. It's important to them to bring along the credibility that is endowed by those institutions. So right in the same ways that I would be less likely to cite a individual journalist on Twitter or X over an article from a journalist that I had never heard of in, you say, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, I think scientist behaviors mirror that. So simply by pulling on the credentialing that is nature, it, it gives the information that you're passing on um, kind of, you know, stronger support um, in your professional endeavors than if you were just citing something otherwise. Um, I think there's lots of threads to pull out there, whether that should be the case or not. But I do think that's probably where the behavior comes from, um, right or wrong, different discussion. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, especially it's interesting. I always find myself um, in real time with the information on X or Twitter. And I think that's more or less um, less about credentialing. It's more about speed. Right? The other thing that we didn't necessarily touch on is how long 
it takes to travel through the editorial process at these legacy machines. In some ways, you could argue that's a good thing because it validates the information before it's actually released into the wild. Um, but in many ways, there's for the things that actually are newsworthy, there's, there's usually an urgency, right? It's natural disasters, it's extreme weather, it's sports events, it's other things that need almost real-time commentary in order to be relayed. Um, political commentary, obviously different, but um, you, you can imagine um, why the kind of speed of these new social media outlets kind of has an advantage over those legacy systems as well. It's a signal and noise problem. And I, I just find it interesting how we, we as consumers of information may use our own kind of customized algorithm to, to sort through the noise. And there's just, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise in science too. We've talked about this before mm -hmm. that, you know, a, a large number of scientific papers that are published passed through peer review and in, in scientific journals never get cited, never get read. Uh, consume a significant financial investment, whether that's a author pay, open access fee, or uh, library subscriptions, uh, where th that article gets bundled in and sold to libraries. There's, there's a huge amount of content that's that's just noise for most readers, and um, so I, I find that re reader information consumption behavior interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's right. It's a it's a problem that we've at least begun to ideate solutions for internally. Right? How do we surface the most important papers, independent of just simply who's writing them, where they're published, how many times they're being read? Because even even those, like I said, citing my own behavior can be misleading. Right. Um, a paper that is published in Nature is far more likely to have me read it than a paper published anywhere else simply because of my user behavior of searching Nature's homepage every day. Right. And so there, you know, there are obviously there are areas of opportunity there to service more impactful and important uh, content than the ways in which it's currently being done. Well, specifically in science. So it's, it's well said. Moving on slightly um, as we kind of begin to think about. Scholar AI in 2024 with specific regards to how we're building our business and kind of matching our ideals with the macroeconomic environment that we're in. Um, we continue to see VC funding falling, um, or at least VC participation falling. Um, Shashi, you have any thoughts with regards to what that means, um, kind of holistically and then maybe what it means for Scholar AI or, or, or doesn't? VC gets its money from limited partners, people who give money to venture capital funds and the the reason a, an investor would contribute to a venture capital fund is to generate an outsized return. Part of VC is that it's illiquid, so you, you expect an illiquidity premium, meaning a higher rate of return because it's illiquid than investing in something that you could trade right away, buy and sell the same day, the same week, even the same quarter. Uh, venture capital doesn't have that profile, it's locked up. So, um, so the reason why an investor, a limited partner, would contribute capital to a VC is because of the high rate of return. VCs generally have not lived up to that high rate of return. That's one factor. Many, many VCs have just not produced a high enough rate of return to warrant continued investment. The other significant, fa significant factor is obviously the higher interest rate uh, from the Fed. That means you can get a 5% return on just cash and have no risk at all. And um, that's that's competing with venture capital returns as well as the, the stock market return, which is liquid. You can buy it, you can sell it, you can change your mind um, any day you want. And that, um, that creates a level of freedom that investors can enjoy while also getting a higher return in most cases than most VCs. So given those choices, limited partners have decided to just contribute less money to venture capital. It's a logical choice. 
Should interest rates go down? Uh, should the Fed rate go down significantly, let's say to 2%, that would ease conditions dramatically on the venture capital community. You'd see more LPs going back into venture capital and therefore those funds kind of being more readily available. What, what I anecdotally sense from speaking to lots of VCs is that there, uh, there is um, a significant downside risk to letting your previous investments from the, from the previous vintage go under. So the current capital that they have on hand is generally uh, available to maintain the companies they've previously funded. They've, there's also a big risk for a venture capital company to mark down their previous investments because that says, basically, we've lost your money um, to, to LPs. The horrible sign LPs would then say, well, I would never give you money again. So, um, so to prevent that risk, they're basically maintaining valuations as best they can using cash on hand which removes the money available for future investments, for, for new investments. So that just results in an environment that's incredibly tight for new checks, new, new, new partnerships, new investments. Um, at, at the same time, it's probably maintaining artificially the, um, the state of companies that um, their previous valuations, maybe they raised in an $80 million or $150 million valuation. And in reality today, if, you, if they got new money, they would be valued at $20 million or $30 million. There's a significant markdown effect that hasn't been um, marked uh, to market. And therefore, uh, venture capital companies are in a way hiding some, some losses or poor investments while companies are being propped up and maintained. In some cases, zombie companies that um, just don't warrant further cash, but no one's willing to kind of take it on the chin. And I, I just, I wish that there was some kind of collective movement in which all of the VC community and all of the kind of venture back startup community just said, okay, we're going to eat this once. We're going to take, everybody's going to take the hit at the same time. The whole, the whole industry is going to take the hit. We're all going to mark down. We're all going to kind of appropriately value these companies and let the ones close that need to close. By the way, there've been an, uh, a, a significant number of uh, startup shutdowns this year in the last 12 months compared to, to previous uh, years. So, um, that, that's the general sentiment in the, in the VC and startup community from my vantage point. I mean, that's all really well said. I don't have a ton to add to that, truthfully, other than to say that as startup lifespan pre-IPO continues to elongate, which is a trend that we've seen recently, that, that may self-correct a little bit. But, but assuming that that trend continues, that's another kind of restriction on liquidity, right? You're, you're incentivized and you're in that startup, even startup founders or early employees, right, can't actually um, capitalize their equity in those companies un until an IPO event or a secondary market um, kind of materializes. And so that is just another constraint on this liquidation problem that investors and kind of inside the startup ecosystem have. So it extends to not just investors, but founders, early employees, etc. Um, that may not want to have the entirety of their, kind of, you know, paper net worth tied up in, a, in an illiquid asset. So, um, Lux, any, any thoughts there? Yeah, I, I mean, nothing really specific to add. I think like, again, having been relatively newer to this than the both of you, it's just been interesting watching it, I guess. And so I guess when I look at the risk assessment, I guess, like the, the logic of everything is very, very sound. Like basically the way Shashi described it, like tracks entirely in my head. Um, it's interesting kind of looking like, with that that in line with kind of like the techno optimism uh, that like ai has brought that vr has brought um so i'm just kind of i guess like it'll be interesting to see like what this market means for 
all this emergent technology, like there's all sorts of stuff that's like really, really exciting people, but the desert's a little bit more dry. And what that's actually going to mean for this stuff becoming the tools that people can actually use, um, especially since startups are traditionally the place that um, innovation, new technology becomes consumer products or at least inspires consumer products. Yeah, it is a fascinating thought. I think there's also with some regard to that, there's some ideas that are beginning to arise that I'm still kind of waiting to see if are simply are if are true or are a little bit of a short term reaction to other conditions in the market. And, and I'll expand on that a little bit. But what I'm meaning is that there seems to be a divesting of interest right now in uh, software businesses, specifically like software as a service, B2B businesses, because margins on those businesses are shrinking. People who were previously expanding seats year over year are laying off employees. So the needs for expanding seats is going down. And so these companies are getting squeezed. Enter large language models with this theory that now organizations are going to be able to build internal systems using these expansive tools so that they don't, they're not reliant on third party suppliers of software to kind of meet the demands of their professional kind of, you know, enterprise, whatever, whatever they're kind of doing. And so I'm very curious to see if this contraction in the SaaS market, specifically B2B SaaS is um, going to be sustained or if it, again, if it's just kind of a, a symptom of constraints on the overall market. And as soon as there's more free flowing cash in the system, you'll see more, you know, increased valuation for SaaS companies um, and beyond. So I think said in a slightly different way, um, LLMs currently, as a specific technology, are putting pressure on SaaS technology. I'm, I'm wondering how much that will continue to be the case um, in the future, or if, or if there will some be some evolution um, of that. Of that, there's um, just uh, to add on to the VC thought of this. There, there's at the same time broad uh, broad sentiment in the VC community that the 2024 vintage will be the, the best return vintage they've seen in their lifetimes. That's because valuations are down. You can be really selective as a VC. And uh, so you'll be able to, to make money on the buy. And it's essentially your entry price into a startup is much lower. And so if you happen to be a VC with cash on hand, this will probably be your, your very best vintage um, where you'll get the, the best rate of return. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. If if that we're in some sort of market correction for valuations, then right now will be the time to buy, especially if you imagine skating into a puck of more favorable, you know, macroeconomic trends for um, VCs. It, it, it's true. It's true. In fact, we've we've kind of thought about that um, in ways that we've started evaluating companies um, in some of my other work uh, as well. So, yeah, it's a it's fascinating time, um, kind of in, in the event. Um, I've actually just begun. This is not. Perfectly relevant, but it, but it is in some ways. Um, I just began Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, and I'm not far enough into it to really make any claims, but um, a lot of the early indication is that companies, you know, the truly transformational companies aren't built um, with incremental gains, right? In kind of these times of revolution, as Lakshay was indicating with large language models, with a market correction of VC valuations, et cetera. So it does feel like in both the same times, uh, a very challenging time on face value while also being almost this perfect cauldron for um, massive potential. So I don't know, excited to be in the middle of it is all I can say. I can very excited to be building in this space, um, especially with the business that is continuing momentum uh, and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I think we've positioned ourselves well to be able to weather whatever the short term storm might be and kind of, again, skate towards that 
puck of more favorable climate where we can we can really take advantage of, of that kind of changing landscape. Okay. Any any other thoughts there as we kind of close that down? No. Okay. Cool. Well, I think moving on to a slightly different topic. Um, we're hiring at Scholarly I specifically right now for um, what well, uh, founding um, front end engineer. And Josh, you kind of sent through some information um, on a trend that we're seeing both in engineering and kind of across various disciplines in that um, remote employees are in, in some ways managing multiple full-time occupations. And so do you want to take us through some thoughts there? It's, um, it's fascinating to see the cultural trend from uh, we moved from in office as the default pre COVID to remote suddenly kind of as the primary working mode. Um, and then um Overemployment, multiple employment as a, a realistic option for many engineers. Uh, and with the supply demand constraints of everyone wanting to hire engineers, uh, I, th I think it's, it's started to become sort of open. You know, this, this was a thing that engineers would have multiple jobs and wouldn't really make that known. And I think now we're starting to head into this, this space where if you, if, if you have this, the supply demand dynamics in your favor as an engineer, you can, you can openly say, I've, I'm going to be working two jobs. These are my two jobs and have that be kind of understood and accepted by employers. I find that cultural shift and that dynamic really interesting. Obviously we see companies like, uh, like Elon's companies requiring people to go in person and um, try to in a way combat that and maintain that kind of full attention of the engineer that they're, they're paying um, and others kind of continuing down the remote path. Luxie, I'm just curious from, from the engineer point of view, how do you, how do you see this kind of um, this cultural trend? Is it, is it now kind of the norm or accepted for engineers to have multiple roles? Yeah. I mean, I think like, I think the, the remote conversation is interesting, especially like we've seen like the last couple months, big tech have now, like you literally have to tap in your badge um, and like make your like presence, like literally logged at the office. Um, cause the obvious thing, at least uh, like big companies, like, Hey, like if you were working remotely, like now there's a productivity loss. Right. Um, I kind of look at it as that like most crucially for the employer, I guess, in trying to assess like whether something's valid or not, is trying to understand like the reason why their employees are working, whether it's just like, you're trying to earn a salary, like get your 40 hours and get your 40 hours out, get your salary, move on versus like this person's kind of believing in this company's mission, like is very dedicated to the cause. Their remote work kind of gives them the space to balance their life, like manage the other things they have going on while also trying to execute on what the company needs them to. Like, for example, I, I know uh, I have friends who like, they work in big tech, are very frustrated. And what they tend to do is like their remote work requirement, they go to the office, they tap their badge, they instantly leave and come back in the evening and tap it again to try and continue living the remote life because that's a little bit more friendly to the, just the way they want to live, right? It's more balanced. I think with regards to like, I haven't met a lot of people myself who are doing two jobs. I know a lot of people like, I mean, I'm one of them where like, you have like the one main time job, you have like the the passion project you kind of run on the side. And for a lot of folks that doesn't necessarily mean tech. I know like friends who are like full-time DJ in the afternoons or full-time bartend because that's what they love doing. And in those cases, I think like that's very, very accepted. It's just like, yeah, like you're an engineer, like it's very tech culture-y to like have like this like side passion to have stuff that you work on the side um, that's outside the scope of tech. I would not think that in big tech, this double job thing is fully accepted. Like, I don't think you could go to like a Google manager and say like, hey, I'm starting a second job. Um, but at least at like smaller companies where like 
the demands are a lot more specific and the the contributions of an individual are much more important. Um, I think it's becoming more accepted because that transparency is valuable and that like, hey, this person has dreams, they have desires, two jobs helps them do that, but we want to also like continue to get value out of them within the scope of our company. Um, and if they can reasonably execute on that, that's perfectly fine by us. How do you see that playing with the layoffs in tech? It, it seems like both things are are true, that there are significant kind of tech layoffs and cost cost cutting measures in, in parts of tech. And at the same time, there is a supply demand imbalance where some engineers can um, potentially be open with their employers or at least one of the two employers to say, hey, I've, I've got multiple jobs. I'm still going to do a good job for you, but um, just want you to understand my context yeah i think like one thing that has just kind of struck me as interesting at least is that like in general tech overhires like big tech specifically like overhires a hell ton it's very very common to just kind of keep engineering on reserve um and just like acquire talent without having a specific need is like oh we need this team or this project to have this many people rather it's we want like the best interns who just graduated from the top schools We'll give them all positions like they just stay in our company for a while. And even if they're like if they're operating at like 30 or 20 percent efficiency, like they're actually doing like maybe like 10 hours of work a week, that's fine. And that used to be the conversation, especially before the layoffs really started. The layoffs that are going on currently beyond like economic reasoning, um, like to me, like it's just part of kind of the typical like tech correction of like we overhired. Now we're moving back down to like what we actually kind of need. We've even seen that like Twitter kind of being the prime example or X when like Elon came along, like wiped out like a massive section of the company and still pretty much up and running, like no problem, right? I think when you look at the smaller companies and the supply demand, I think there's just this like, this element of prestige and like where it is that you're trying to work. I think big tech historically overhires, historically like carries really, really like fluffy amounts of employment whereas like it's in small companies that like people are not discovering people are not chasing those jobs necessarily um that like the supply demand then becomes evident um just because the attraction of most engineers to a certain companies tends to be like big tech salary like getting a meta salary is obviously very very enticing as opposed to like a smaller company i think there's two kind of simultaneous things that are happening here. Number one is in direct relation to where we started or where we were earlier in this conversation with regards to how much funding kind of is in these tech companies, whether it be venture capital or like in the, you know, kind of liquid markets. These organizations, these massive tech companies have historically over the last, you know, five to 10 years had almost unlimited access to very, very cheap capital. Um, so that means they could, they could overhire. They could kind of be getting under production value from workers on an individual basis. And in some ways that was paying dividends because those, those other people weren't out building competing technology companies, right? If you bring in the best and brightest, they fundamentally work for you and not against you. And so there are some corporate initiatives that simply bring on talented people to sequester talent. And they're willing to overpay for those people because, you know, that actually effectively influences their bottom line far less than if they were out building a, a competitor, right? And so we, we you know, the, the merits of that can be debated, obviously, but um, I do think that that's a, a fairly kind of, you know, wide known, if not explicitly stated goal of these companies. Um, but I think the, the somewhat more interesting thread in all of this is from the employee's perspective, I think 
the alignment of incentives is a thing that employers have to keep in mind, right? Is so I think understanding why an engineer or any remote employee might want two jobs is important, right? If it's simply for a pay raise, um, you know, there, there's obviously incentives there. Or if, like Lakshay was saying, it's, it's simply because their primary or their, you know, quote unquote full time job doesn't provide them with the sort of kind of intellectual stimulation that they would maybe find in DJing or bartending or something else, then that's a completely different, you know, topic, right? And so maybe um, in some ways you can solve for a lot of this by simply paying people more, um, but in other ways you, you can't, right? Um, maybe maybe they, they like being an engineer, but they also like being a DJ. And in some ways, you know, there's, there's not a way to synergize those two things. And so a single employer could not fulfill, you know, kind of the, um, objectives of, of, a, of an employee. Um, I also, just speaking about it from a personal perspective, I find that if I'm working on one project in a vacuum with 100% of my focus, my burnout rate is much higher than if I'm working on multiple projects that I, that I deem um, important, but in some sort of relative hierarchy of priority. Right. So I, I always kind of had um, like growing up, it was always academics and sports. Right. So there was never a time when I wasn't playing a sport competitively and trying to pay it, play it at a very high level. And then that just naturally kind of gave me energy across both domains. Right. So I didn't burn out doing academics because I was spending a lot of my days doing sports. I didn't burn out in sports because I was spending a lot of days um, doing academics. And so um, in some ways that's, that's translated into my professional career as well. And it like, the idea of doing a singular project um, every second of every day feels more exhausting than doing extra work, but but doing so on multiple projects. Do you think the generation today of kind of working age people is more natively parallel processing than before? I feel like my generation, I, I was born in the 80s and uh, everyone kind of got the internet as we got to kind of high school and college. And we didn't kind of grow up with this parallel processing like capability natively. I think we had to kind of like adapt it in in our kind of young adulthood. And I wonder if the kind of uh, millennials, Gen Z, are more natively programmed to parallel process because of just kind of the the, the way that apps and computers um, operate. It's an interesting thought. It's not one that I originally kind of thought. I think a lot of it, truthfully, comes from the pressure of increased cost of living. I think a lot of people are double dipping for the paycheck. Um, so I think setting that aside, there is another interesting conversation that you're beginning to pull out. But I do think the bulk majority of this is probably coming from a simple desire for people to make more money, independent of parallel processing or otherwise. But I do think it's an interesting thought exercise to walk down our new generations, um, more native parallel processors than previous generations. I don't know. Lakshay, do, do you have thoughts there? Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, I think like, especially having been someone who graduated from college like two years ago, like was applying to college in 2017. My surf sensation is just that like, I can't speak to what it was like before, but at least like more than I perceive, it feels like just in the modern day, like if you're a competitive intellectual person, you kind of need to be doing like 7,000 things at once, right? If you want to get into the good schools, you want to get to the good jobs, it's no longer about being the greatest at one thing. You have to be like, really good and have a really good story on one thing and be excellent like around the board right if you want to like get into like a good college like typically that game means like okay like your grades are excellent your clubs are excellent you found something or another you lead like a different club like you do athletics in some capacity you have a diverse set of interests and you have those expressed in different manners right 
And like that carries into college where you see like, even the moment I entered college, like I like met with like a senior, like just some mentorship thing that we got paired into. And one of the first things that the senior told me is like, pick up three clubs, ones for learning, ones for passion, ones for networking and focus on all three of those on top of your academics and whatever you do for your like personal health. And also like making sure you're continuing friendships or whatever. Right. Um, I think when you kind of go into like job roles and that sort of thing, like to me, it felt like a big step change where all of a sudden it's like, it felt like the construction of it is very, very one path. It was actually kind of jarring to me that like, okay, your expectation of you as an employee is to know this one thing really, really well. And that's it, right? Like we don't care about like you focusing on your creativity or expressing your creative side because you're an engineer. Like all you're supposed to do is just like be really, really good at database systems, get excellent at database systems. And we'll see you next weekend. You know, like it was very, very limited compared to what I was used to. Even with folks that we've met, like through the context of folks who've reached out to us, like interested in being part of our team or um, like helping out in some capacity, like it tends to be that the case is that like even startups, the folks who are attracted to it, like doing a hell ton of things. The folks who like even start with us have been with us really early, like get involved in a lot of other things beyond like what the traditional role scope would be. Right. Um, just because the excitement of it, the ideas that you can kind of generate, the creative you, the creativity you can express um, is something that gets enabled only within specific contexts. The uh, operating system for companies to hire is I think, very much engineered for my generation, which is you know, for, for us to get into college, it was sort of excelling at one thing. It was sort of a linear um, mono function kind of path. Um, versus kind of what you just described, actually, of, of kind of being involved in lots of things and showing multi-dimensionality. And, um, and it, it strikes me in hearing you that the, the labor system having, you know, a job title that really just sort of describes one thing that you're, you're supposed to do um, is really just kind of all architected around my generation and not yours. And that maybe we should be seeing employment, especially of people of your generation, as kind of hiring a multidimensional person with multiple skills and talents that you can kind of enable, rather than kind of expecting them to monoprocess down one line of, of expertise. Yeah, as Lakshay was laying that out, it was really resonating with me. And that, right, because I'm almost like, almost in some ways perfectly situated between you two and, and me. I'm, I entered um, undergrad in 2011. And so, um, you know, around that time, it was, there was definitely an emphasis on kind of, you know, this jack of all trades approach where it was like you had to have great grades and your ACT and SAT scores had to be excellent, but then also you needed to be in six clubs and you should be president of at least three of them. And, you know, doing chess on the weekends was, was fine. Also, you know, basketball or otherwise was, was great, but you definitely couldn't be doing nothing or else you just simply weren't a competitive applicant. And in many ways, um, this, this kind of parlays into a larger conversation around this idea of grade inflation. Um, and also a de-emphasis on things like the SAT and ACT that are effectively proxies for, you know, um, IQ exams, essentially, um, it's, it's fascinating that as you, as everybody has been able to more readily achieve uh, a 4.0 or, you know, relative GPA, the emphasis on extracurriculars and other ways to differentiate yourself has become more important, right? If grades were, you know, more systematically normalized to where like a 2.0 or a 2.5, right? A true Gaussian distribution to where your two sigma 
and deviations were the people getting four points. I wonder if that kind of, um, you know, if, if it might shift back towards uh, kind of a singular focus. I don't know. Just, just a thought that I was having in real time as, as you were laying it out, Roshi. At least in my like high school and like college time, like it very much felt like the average grade is a B. Like it's like an 85% is considered perfectly average. And that grade inflation is like 100% a thing. Like even my engineering classes, like the curve, like that term, like uh, one of my physics professors and or teachers in high school was uh, ranting about the idea of a curve and what it's supposed to mean, what you exactly describe with this Gaussian distribution, right? Um, but what's fundamentally turned into is like, keep everyone centered on a B and move that way. So maybe it's like a little bit under one standard deviation that keeps like intelligence in an A range, right? And you can see in like some cases where like, even with um, with AP classes, like um, I assume this is a thing when you're in high school as well, Damon, but with AP classes, like APs give you over a 4.0 so they can contribute like intensely positively to your GPA. And some schools give like very, very significant <laughs> value to what AP is worth, where it's like suddenly like this is a 5.0 or like a 5.5 value GPA. So you're seeing people graduate high school and enter college with something like a 4.6 GPA when it's supposed to be like, capped at four the two things we seem like we're trying to measure are work ethic and capabilities in each class and um, all of these things feel like in a way proxies to to get at those two things including what college you went to what you know what, what what brands you have associated with you in terms of you know employers and awards and such all of these things are intended to represent, I believe, your willingness to work and your ability to do that that work at a, a high level with you know, training skills capabilities baked in. And it feels like that needs to be reimagined from first principles of you know how, how do you how do you measure those things well because we've sort of diluted in in many ways the value of university brands, the value of grades, the value of SATs or rejecting you know, standardized testing because of this or that. And so we need to probably start again from a blank sheet of paper and figure out how to do credentialing well. I think that's right. I think it's incredibly well said. And I think that as people who are building a startup with the primary focus being the successful you know, um, building of the startup, I think it's, it's an opportunity for us to, to do exactly that, to think about how do we bring the absolute best people into our organization and allow them to be creative and multifaceted and work on the problems that interest them the most while still providing kind of an ultimate value add to um, our, our, our users. So anyway, this is fun. This is fun. This is, a, this is a lot of fun. I'm really great conversation. We're going to cut it off today. Um, we've got some other things we've got to run to, but thank you all as always for joining us on the Scholar AI Founders Pod. Please find us on all the usual podcast locations, leave your comments, in the sections below. Um, we'd love to engage, love to kind of answer any questions you all have. Um, feel free to push back on any of the things that we've said, and maybe we'll get to them uh, next week. Be sure to find us on YouTube as well, and see you all next time. Show with me, you got a little, show with me.